From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. If you have breast cancer, you also carry a higher risk of severe illness from COVID-19 due to having a weakened immune system. Today's guest was diagnosed with stage one HER2 positive breast cancer before COVID vaccinations were available yet. And during a time when she should have been celebrating as she had just received her doctorate in biochemistry. The effect of navigating this diagnosis during a global pandemic was overwhelming, both physically and mentally. Here today to share her story and how she held on to hope through this process is Morgan Mitchell. Morgan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us and just sharing your story and and your life with us for a moment here. So I understand that last fall should have been a time of celebration and new beginnings for you. Tell us about the exciting things that were happening in your life and then tell us about your diagnosis. Yes. Well, again, thank you so much, uh, Adam, for having me here. Last fall, it was in May that I defended my dissertation um, for a PhD program in biochemistry that I've been working on for seven years. And it, you know, as you can imagine, it was a lot involved in that program. Uh, During the course of the program, my dad tragically passed away. I had to take a semester off from school because of that, just to deal with psychological issues and grief like that. So I, you know, during this time when I was getting ready to defend my my dissertation and, and you know, putting all the bells and whistles on and, and just editing um, my thesis, I was really excited to finally, you know, be graduating and, and embarking upon my career. And unfortunately, what happened is that I ended up getting diagnosed with breast cancer and graduating uh, from my doctoral program in the same month. And so that was last year in, in August 2020. So it was, you know, you, you hit this extreme high and then it's almost like your, your knees are cut from up under mm. you with this extreme low. It was, it was surreal and I was in shock. I mean, I can only imagine. I mean, it's that's, that's such a a juxtaposition between those two extremes. I can just imagine how difficult that must have been. I mean, do do you have a family history of breast cancer at all? No, I don't have a family history of breast cancer. My mom doesn't have breast cancer. Um, my grandmother didn't have it. My aunt doesn't have it. So, you know, cancer was the furthest thing from my mind. I. I wasn't thinking of cancer. I was young. I'm, I'm graduating, you know, with a PhD in biochemistry. I'm excited to to be a scientist and to to start work in the uh, scientific community. Again, I'm young. At the time, I was 34. I hadn't even uh, begun to do self checks because self checks are recommended at 35. And me, with no family history mammograms are not recommended until 40. And Mm. in fact, health insurance won't pay for it until then. So I, you know, it it was a complete shock, complete shock. Mm. I I, I never thought anything 
like this. It was the furthest thing from my mind. So, so tell me, like, you know, you, you were diagnosed. What kind of treatments did you have to undergo? And tell us about that experience. So I got diagnosed and, and, and let me tell you, by the way, the story of how I got diagnosed. So it was during COVID and it was kind of during the early COVID. I mean, it was during the summer and, uh, you know, it was like July or so. And I just happened to brush up against, you know, my breast and I felt something kind of, you know, a little bit different, bulging. And I said, okay, whatever you know, and just shrugged it off. Because again, it's the furthest thing from my mind. But then the next day, I happen to feel it again. So I show my mom, she felt it. And she said, Oh, yeah, there's something there. Make an appointment with your OBGYN. So that's what I did. I made an appointment with my OBGYN. She said, Yes, there is definitely something here. She said, because of your age, you know, family history is probably just a cyst. I've had three of them in my entire life. So it's not uncommon. You know, we just get a biopsy and, and proceed from there. And the biopsy um, results came back and it was cancerous five days later. And I, I was just in shock. I was, I was just in complete shock. Everything went, I, I mean, it was almost automatic at that point because I, I got diagnosed in August 2020 of last year, and I got my first chemotherapy treatment in September, the day before my 35th birthday. Wow. And so that's how I spent my birthday. <laughs> and I went through six months of, of chemotherapy. I did a surgery, and I did what's called a lumpectomy surgery. Luckily, I was stage one, so it hadn't metastasized or anything like that, hadn't spread too far. So they're just able to do what's called a lumpectomy, where they just go in and essentially remove the lump and surrounding areas. So I did that, and then I did six weeks of radiation. And right now I'm on maintenance therapy. So it's essentially medication and therapy to help the tumor from not coming back. Mm, okay, gotcha. So you mentioned that you started this, or I think you mentioned you were diagnosed sort of at the height of the pandemic. And as I mentioned in the intro, this was you know, pre-vaccine. There's a lot of stress at that time globally about COVID. Um, I mean, tell us about what you were going through during COVID dealing with cancer and how, how did that affect you physically and how did that affect you mentally? Yeah, Adam, it was really the scariest thing I've ever encountered before in my life. Once I got diagnosed with cancer, I knew that COVID for me was going to take on a different meaning because I knew that once chemotherapy started, I was going to be very, very immunocompromised. The only reason I left the house was to go to treatment. That's the only reason. I never went anywhere else just for my safety and just because I didn't feel comfortable. And everyone knew that I, that I was severely immunocompromised. Um, so it was, it was really hard to, 
to stay at home during those times. You know, at one point in December, I I started having flu-like symptoms and I I had a fever of 102 and I was terrified. I said, you know what, this is it. I'm going to be like thousands of other Americans in a hospital fighting for my life. You know, it was it was just really, really scary. The unknown part of it, the mental toll that it takes on you. I wasn't even comfortable going outside to parks. It was a really, really scary time. You know, it's a scary time for a healthy person, Mm. you know, much less an immunocompromised person, you know, mentally, psychologically. You know, it, it it became very lonely. You start to feel like you're a prisoner in your in your own house, not to mention, you know, the physical toll from the treatment itself. Chemo is very hard on the body. You know, I had diarrhea, upset stomach, nausea. It was it was really hard. It was really hard when you combine that psychological toll and the physical toll of having cancer mm-hmm. it was extremely scary words words cannot describe how terrified i was i was mm. scared for my life literally mm. yeah i mean I, I can only imagine so so what was it i mean what was it or how did you keep moving forward during that time I did a lot of things. I mean, the support from my friends, my family, my community, every card and every sentimental gift just uplifted me so much and made me realize, you know, that people love me and they they are here for me and they do care. That was one thing. Another thing, my mom is retired. I live with my mom. So that was extremely helpful. Because she was essentially my caretaker throughout this entire time. You know, she's a she's a mama bear and she's, you know, trying to make sure her her baby is okay. So she's cooking meals and, and feeding them to me in the bed and making sure I'm hydrated, you know, doing all of those things. So that was really helpful. My faith. And my relationship with God really became so much more fortified because when you're going through um, a, a life turn like that, and when you're literally looking death, you know, in the face, oh yeah, you start talking to God a whole lot more. <laughs> I can <laughs> I can only imagine, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people send me journals. I started journaling. So I wouldn't say it was one thing that really helped me to persevere, but it was more so a combination of of all of these things. I mean, if, if any one of these things um, had been absent, I wouldn't have made it. It was, it was everything uh, put together. You know, some days I didn't feel like journaling. So I would talk to God. Some days I didn't feel like talking to God. So I would eat the mac and cheese. <laughs> you know, you gotta you gotta take take the little small gains that you can. Not every day is a good day. You have a lot of bad days, but at the end of the day, you're here 
and there are people that care about you and love you. Ultimately, you know, those things are what got me through. That's right. That's right. People do care about you and love you. Um, and, and you're here. This, this is the day that you've got. So, so let's talk for a moment about your medical team. I mean, did you feel supported by them? What was that experience like? I want to tread here lightly because I, I love my medical team. I love my, my doctors, my nurses, my staff. They are very hardworking people who put their life on the line every single day. Again, this was during a global pandemic and they were masked up, suited up, gloved up, showed up to work. And I felt as though they were fighting the battle with me. I never felt as though they were incompetent. I never felt as though I was being neglected or overlooked. Um, you know, and especially the nurses. I mean, to have that type of job, you have to be a special person and just have compassion for people. I mean, it it takes a special personality to do that. So I'm I'm very grateful um, for my for my medical team. However, um, <laughs> I I I do feel as though some things were lacking. I feel as though if you go to different cancer treatments, you get offered a whole myriad of services from, um, it could be massage therapy, it could be psychological therapy, it could be any types of therapies that are often used other than drugs that, that are really helpful. The place that I went to didn't offer these services. So it's kind of like I had to reach out to my nurses and say, hey, do you know a psychiatrist? You know, that would be good with cancer patients. Do you know, I mean, is massage therapy? I mean, because in my case in particular, I had a lot of nerve pain. I had a lot of nerve pain in my feet. And in my hands. And at one point, it got so bad, I, I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair and I was bedridden for a month, you know, and the doctors had to take me off of that medication and put me on to a different medication. But, you know, these, these medications are very harsh and they take a long time. They basically have to wear out of your system. So so the the long term and the residual effects are still there, you know, mm -hmm. but it was basically me talking to just other people, you know, word of mouth and, you know, me learning, oh, acupuncture may be able to help this or massage mm -hmm. therapy may be able to help this. And at some of the other I guess, larger known cancer clinics, they have everything like that on site. They have an acupuncturist. They have a psychiatrist. All of those people are in place and they're there waiting for you. The patient is already dealing with so much. We're, we're already dealing with so much. We have cancer. So the, the less that we have to do um, in terms of, of that front, I think that was 
lacking. And again, healthcare workers do so much. I mean, they put in hours upon hours upon hours and their work to the max and, and everything like that. And I'm, I'm so grateful for, for them, you know, providing the, the best care and the best treatment. I think it's more so an institutional or a, a systemic mm. uh, fail in that sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not one person's fault. It's a lot of people's fault. It's not necessarily built into the patient system as it should be. And the person who, who, who feels the brunt of this is the patient. And mm-hmm. and so you should be doing everything to make sure the patient has whatever he or she needs at, at mm-hmm. any of their fingertips. So it, it was it was it was a little bit different in that sense. So, uh, Morgan, last question here and, and really just appreciate, you know, all that you shared with us um, about just such a difficult time. Um, so but the last question. Are there any parting words that you want to leave our listeners with? Maybe anything that you'd like to share that you wish you would have known before you went through this process? Yes, definitely. I I appreciate this question so much. And I appreciate the opportunity to to really speak on this because breast cancer was the furthest thing from my mind. It wasn't at all on the radar. But when you look at the numbers and look at the statistics, about black women and breast cancer. It really is a totally different disease than white women with breast cancer. And because of that, we have to treat it differently. And because we have to treat it differently, it starts with awareness. It really starts with breast health. Because by the time you you say the term breast cancer, it's almost too late because you already have cancer at this point. We need to talk about breast health. We need to start at puberty. We need to start with young women who are developing breasts and teach them how to do self-checks, teach them to know their breasts, teach them to know differences, teach them to know when something's wrong or something seems off. You know, that that's where we need to start. If you look at myself, anything that had to do with breast cancer, I'm not even looking at it because I don't have breast cancer. So already that doesn't pertain to me. You know, I don't have breast cancer, but now I do. <laughs> so now I'm looking at everything that says breast cancer. Um, but we need to be in a more um, preventative mode rather than a treatment mode and it all starts with awareness i mean nobody told me you know black women are two times more likely to get breast cancer than their white counterparts nobody told me that why not why didn't somebody tell me that black women are 40 percent more likely to die from breast cancer than their white counterparts i was never told that why wasn't i we need to we need to start having these conversations. We need to we need to start um, having open and, and honest conversations. And 
Um, a lot of times in the Black community, it's also taboo to talk about health and talk about death. People don't inquire how that person passed. It's just like, oh, they they passed. They've gone on to glory. You know, mm. well, how did they pass? Oh, I don't know. I don't ask those questions. But uh, <laughs> we, we, we need to ask these questions. We need to know our family medical history. That's so important. So Morgan, you know, thank you so much for, for all the, the, the thoughtful things that you shared and for being vulnerable with us. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, you're right. These are the conversations that we need to be having. And you're a part of that by coming on Real Pink today. So thank you so much for all that you're doing to bring awareness to these issues. Thank you for sharing about your experience with us. And thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. For more episodes, visit realpink.komen.org. And for more on breast cancer, visit komen.org. Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com.